Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hi, my name is Graham Simpson, author of The Rosie Project, or as we say in Australia, more euphoniously, The Rosie Project, and I'm here to take over this comedic episode of the Penguin Podcast. Now, from my experience of visiting the folk at Penguin, they're all a happy, smiling lot, which is no wonder with the witty personalities that come in and out of their doors. Some of them feature on today's podcast, which will hopefully leave you with a big smile on your face. For starters, there'll be an interview from a bonkers comedian-turned-author, a father-and-son comedy act, a literary comic genius, and a lovable, flawed school kid. But first, I thought I'd quickly hand over to a good friend of mine, Don Tillman, the lead character of my book, The Rosie Project. Last week, Penguin asked their Twitter following to tweet in their questions to Don, which he has answered and left me to read out to all of you now. Okay. Um, What's the first thing that you notice about a member of the opposite sex? I have been accused of noticing their body mass index owing to my frequent references in The Rosie Project. But in fact, the first thing I notice is their eyes. This is because I have been advised that I should make eye contact with people, so obviously that's the first thing I do. And thanks to some of the experiences gained during the Rosie Project, I am now increasingly conscious of eye colour and make some assumptions and conclusions regarding the person's parentage and the eye colour of those people. Don, as someone who devised a very lengthy questionnaire to help you find a wife... How do you feel about shows like Blind Date and Take Me Out, where contestants have just three answers or three ways to present themselves to find a partner? Totally inadequate. I'm cooking lobster tonight. What cocktail would you recommend as a pre-dinner drink? Obviously an alcoholic cocktail, unless it is one of your non-alcohol nights, which I recommend to at least monthly. Um, But if you're drinking alcohol, an alcoholic cocktail, and I would recommend margarita world's most popular cocktail, hence most likely to be agreeable to you. I'm not having much luck finding a boyfriend. What do you recommend? I recommend you abandon luck as your method of finding a boyfriend and employ a more scientific approach. A detailed questionnaire, a list, a full understanding of what you're looking for, and obviously employ the internet. Don, what would be your ideal holiday destination? A place offering superb food and total privacy. Do you still eat lobster on Tuesday or have you opened your schedule to try new things? Owing to the Rosie Project, I am required to abandon the standardised meal system and therefore I no longer eat lobster every Tuesday. Obviously it is possible to eat lobster on some Tuesdays, but now I am substituting other things such as crayfish, prawn, crab in the lobster salad. I'm after suggestions for what to buy my husband this Christmas. Any ideas? The Rosie Project. What is your star sign, Don? Might we be compatible? No. What are your views on internet dating? Obviously, the most effective way of finding a partner is to spread the net as widely as possible to maximise the chance of encountering a compatible person. The internet is the appropriate technology for this. I've been married for 20 years. What are the chances of my husband and I staying together forever? I'm not a statistician. This information is not immediately available to hand, but I suggest that you consult the relevant statistics, but that you frame your question more carefully. It's highly unlikely your husband and you will stay together forever, if forever is understood to mean the lifetime of the universe, because the earth will shatter. Even if your, even if your bones are buried next to each other, there will t- come a time when in the evolution of the universe this will not be true. If you're asking about lifetimes, you will need to define whose lifetime you're referring to, Frame your question properly and ask again and ask a statistician. Don, what's the best way to dump someone? Is there a nice way? You're asking me? You're asking me for advice on tact, on appropriate behaviour. I recommend that you form your own conclusion, which is doubtless going to be more socially appropriate than mine. What's your favourite thing about the British? Men of my age dress highly uniformly, therefore there's very little difficulty in fitting in. Don, if you could have a superpower, other than your existing ones, obviously, what would it be? Hmm. Very interesting question. The ability to slow down time, or alternatively and equivalently, to move faster and think faster than everybody else, which would enable me to make less errors in conversation due to having additional time to think about my response. What's your idea of a perfect date evening with Rosie? 
Unfortunately, the Museum of Natural History is closed in the evenings. Therefore, I would recommend visiting an alternative museum, eating the degustation menu at Momofuku Ko with accompanying wines, an after-dinner cocktail, followed by sex. Thank you to everyone who sent in their questions, but if you missed the chance, fear not, Don is always around to chat and help you with life's hurdles on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Prof Don Tillman, P-R-O-F-D-O-N-T-I-L-L-M-A-N. And now, on to a comic legend who has spent her entire life making people chuckle, whoop, and go bop bananas. Despite facing some difficult periods in her life, most of all battling the laws of procrastination, Jennifer Saunders has plenty to laugh about, which she discusses with her editor, Joel Rickett. Hello, Penguin podcasters. I'm um, Joel Rickett from Penguin, and I'm delighted, thrilled to be sitting here with one of my authors, Jennifer Saunders. Hello, Joel. Hello. Who's gone and written a book? Yes, thanks to you. I, I wasn't <laughs> sure how that happened. They said it could never be done. Well, I You said I, it could never be done. <laughs> I thought it would never be done until I met you at Claire Balding's book launch. Ah. That's how it happened. And what, you persuaded me I plied me you with warm white wine. Yes. Mm. When I was drunk enough, I um, I agreed to do it. And then you had to actually write the thing. Yes, which was quite hard. <laughs> <laughs> As you know, it was quite difficult. Well, it didn't feel like that for me. But if, uh, well, no, because you got the end result. <laughs> <laughs> I got the words. You got the words. I had to think them up. And you've called it bonkers. Yes. My life. My life in loves. Yeah. And it's a fairly bonkers book, isn't it? It is a fairly bonkers book because it's so haphazard. And because my life has never never really had a plan, that, I mean, I was going to call it Where's the Plan? Because, in fact, my whole life has been a sort of series of things that just sort of happened. One after the other. One after the other, yes, no thank Machiavellian God. No Machiavellian scheme No, no wormholes. The comedy world. <laughs> no, none at all. So this is a comedy podcast, so I, and I thought I would start with the dedication in the book, which yeah. is a lovely picture of your dad, who is a pilot in the RAF, mm. and um, the book and the dedication reads, "For my father, who taught me the importance of laughter." Yes. How did he do that? Because you he, tell it very well in the book. He did it because his whole ethos about life. Is ethos the right word Something there? Like that. It's not bathos or pathos, <laughs> is it? It's ethos. Um, was um, that, uh, that you could, you, you were allowed to be serious, but you couldn't take yourself seriously. Therefore, everything had to have something funny around it. And he was a great mimic. He was a great clown. And he was just generally always funny, especially to us, us kids, you know. And you he, say, he was, I remember, there's a great bit when you talk about how he, he, um, took the mickey shall we say out of people who kept their military yes. or RAF titles later in life and there was a certain Commander Cox Commander Cox yes who lived <laughs> me <laughs> well because he couldn't bear pomposity and anybody who thought they could get away in civilian life by keeping their title like major so and so when they'd probably only ever been in the army for two years you know and out for 32 um, he just used to rip the piss out of and in front of us kids, this guy would come round. It was called Commander Cox. And go, hello, Commander. Commander Cox is here. Look, look, children. It's Commander. Commander Cox is here. Oh, hello, Commander. Do come in, Commander. Like this. And also, he was very charming. So no one ever sort of realised. It was only us. And he'd sort of wink us in on the joke. Um, so we were always being entertained by him. And I remember my parents, wherever they went to a party or if we'd had a family gathering, in the car on the way home, they would just go through everybody and do imitations right. and character assassinations. <laughs> and it was just hilarious. So you just joined in. So we just joined in, yeah. But you didn't sort of start kind of performing in any formal sense at school. It wasn't like you were no. one of these girls up on the you know stage every, you know, or you weren't sort of you know starring in things. You weren't even doing much drama, really. I don't, we, we never did drama at school. And we did, um, I think we once did a review when I was in the sixth form, and I think that was about it. I wasn't in plays. No. No. Didn't so do but then you found yourself somehow, by accident almost. <laughs> on <laughs> Everything was a little bit <laughs> by accident, yes. <laughs> on a, it, was, it was actually a teacher training course, but you sort it of was. thought it was a drama course. Or well, I knew it was in London. That was, that, was, that was all the knowledge I had, was go to a college in London, here's the address. Um, 
and yeah, it turned out to be a teacher training course, which slightly flummoxed me. Um, and we had to do a certain amount of performance, and that's when I started performing, I suppose. And you found, and that's where you met Dawn, in fact. Yeah, that's Dawn where Frenchy. I met Dawn. Dawn French, off the television, um, was there. And by the third year, we'd worked up an act. Just to entertain ourselves, basically, because we were in a flat with lots of other people and used to get bored. And alcohol was generally too expensive. Yeah, no so, money. But no money. So we used to eat cheaply, not drink much, and just mess about all the time. Can you remember your earliest um, performance in that, oh, yeah. in that living room? No, definitely, because... Um, there was a sort of square of sofas and everyone would sit down and look at the television and we'd go in and ask them to stand up, move all the sofas back and we'd do a mimed circus act in the middle of the room for them. <laughs> um, which we thought was hilarious. This was, the, was this the Menop- this was the Menopazi, Menopazi sisters? sisters. Okay. Um, who were the next generation on from the Menopause sisters ah. who were the earlier act. Yep. And, um, and we used just to laugh more than the audience always and then leave the room in hysterics and they just you know push the sofas back and turn the telly back on (laughs) but we had such fun and it was all i mean that was it wasn't it It was the fun it was always the fun yeah it was always the fun i think when you find someone you can have fun with that you can play with it's like when you've got a best friend at um at school and you always want to be with that person because that's the person you enjoy jokes with that's the person you don't feel embarrassed in front of i think that's the most important thing in a in a comedy relationship is the person you can't embarrass yourself in front of no because you've got such intimacy and yeah. you've done everything yeah you, it's a it's a huge trust thing i think and it did sort of then turn into a real act when you couldn't find a job <laughs> <laughs> well no i couldn't find a job and the job didn't find me and and i was sort of indolent and uh, and sitting on a step in Chelsea with my friend Jobo. And uh, we used to always go through the stage. Every, every week we'd get a copy of the stage um, and have a look through the jobs at the back and always think, oh, I really, really want a job on a cruise. So like a job on a cruise because you get to go on the cruise and you get a job. And uh, so we'd always be looking for jobs on cruises. And one day we went through it and there was this job advertised in a comedy club in Soho and they wanted female acts because there were so few at the time. And to be right on and to be alternative, you couldn't ignore the fact that actually it couldn't be all male. You know, it had they had to have some. So bosoms. you were the token. So we were the token. <laughs> we were the token quota. <laughs> we were the only alive beings that walked into the audition with bosoms and um, <laughs> got the that job. That was it. That got the job. And you started doing the in this in 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 a, in a strip club actually. <laughs> yeah, it was in a strip club. <laughs> the earliest comic strip. Yeah. And. We thought it was quite cool, actually, to be in Raymond's Review Bar. Um, but then everything in Soho was in a strip club. I mean, the, the comedy store was above a strip club. Yep. It was um, That was the place where there were lots of little venues and stages. So. And, you pu- and you put on these sort of skits, some of which you, as you say, developed <laughs> on the uh, sofa. But then... Yes. Yes, we did. I mean, we just put on what we'd done at the College Cabaret. What I love about it is when, when you said to me it was, it was only after a while that you realised you didn't have to change them every night because it was <laughs> yes. the audience that changed. We suddenly thought, my God, we're going on every night. We can't do the same material. That's ridiculous. <laughs> and so we would we would try and, you know, every night think of, we've got to do a different thing tomorrow. We've got to do a different thing tomorrow. And it, it came down to some pretty tragic material by the end. I mean, Dawn would walk on stage and we'd start acting like um, uh, Thunderbirds puppets. And be walking around the stage like puppets, which was half funny, um, and, and and I think most people didn't know what we were doing. And then Dawn, I'd, I'd say I'd say to Dawn, "What's the time, brains?" And she'd put her her wrist on her forehead and say, four o'clock, Mister Tracy." And that was the end that of the sketch. Line. So then we just had to go. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Good night. <laughs> Are any of these moments captured on uh, film? No, thank God. Oh. No, I think I mean the probably got a great are photo some... in the book from from very early. Yeah, there's some very good photos in the book, where you just think, "What are you wearing?" <laughs> what are... I decided, Dawn decided a small pair of tartan trousers and a red t-shirt was her stage outfit, and I okay. decided that a black velour tracksuit that gripped you at the ankles and some peaked toe sandals <laughs> was my outfit. 
So there you go. It's fairly hot under those lights. And those well, we were young. We didn't notice. <laughs> <laughs> so that, and do you think the cat and, the, and some of the characters and the way and the kind of skits and takes on things you did then, did they sort of carry all the way through, all the way through into the years of French and Spanish? Um, yeah, I'm sure they did. Actually, I'm sure we used a lot of our. It's a lot of it's to do with um, little attitudes you find, mm. so that you can adapt them into different into different sketches. Um, and for a long time, we liked being teenagers. You know, we liked the sort of teenage attitude. So we'd write a lot of teenage sketches and um, old people sketches or something. But I mean, the thing that was the interesting thing to find was the French and Saunders relationship, which we never had in the early days. We'd literally come on, go into a sketch character. Right. Say so thank you very much at and the end of the sketch. There'd be a my, little few applause like that, and then we go and now the next sketch, and then get on with that. So there was no sort of there was no act no as linking. such. There was just sketches. And once we found the act, I think um, that was the big breakthrough, really. And you took you, it seems like a different era in the bit in terms of when you it first was a came different in. Era, it was Joel. it actually was <laughs> a different era technically. It was many hundreds and of years really, ago. Um, but you came into BBC and just had this extraordinary sort of freedom to keep that rolling, really, and to yeah. well, that find was, your way. You see, what they did then is they just brought people in who were a cert- who had a certain success and that had, you know, a sort of small following. And they didn't try and adapt you for club. television. Strip oh, club. strip club following. <laughs> yes, for old men in Max. <laughs> and um, they didn't try and adapt you for the television. They took what you were doing and put it on television. And didn't interfere with you. I mean, it was a very creative place to work in those days. And they didn't sort of can you if you had one dodgy show or series no. or something, or you kind no, of. No, I think the general thing was, you know, let's see how it goes for one. You're obviously going to be better in two, and the third one will be the great one. Same applies you think to books you know, you in think many think cases. Yes, Not maybe. in this one. The first one is the best. <laughs> it's, well, it's only this one, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> We haven't told you about bonkers tea yet. Oh, two bonkers. Two bonkers. Two bonkers. This time it's personal. <laughs> um, so talking about, let's go all the way forward on the comedy theme through mm. to meeting, and you talk about meeting Dawn and how that, you know, finding someone who who can keep the funny going. And was mm. it the same with Joanna Lumley? Really the same, yeah. Mm. It was um, interesting. And we hadn't had such a big build-up, too, because Dawn and I, we sort of knew each other. We were with each other every day at college. And so it was a sort of gradual process of getting to know. But when you... Um, with Joanna, it was very quick <laughs> because, you know... You were throwing together we a series. We were throwing together in a almost, series and... I mean, the way that happened on. was extraordinary. You just had to I just had to thing. write something and um, then had to cast it and and... I didn't know if I was going to get on with her because mm. I'd never met her, you know. And she had this air of this lovely voice and this everything was lovely, lovely. And uh, I thought, oh, I don't know if I'm going to get on with lovely, lovely. But it turns out she's not lovely, lovely at all. <laughs> <laughs> turns out she's pretty fantastic and really funny mm. and very down to earth. And there's a, I mean, among many treasures in the book, there's a, there's a, chapter which is almost entirely composed of the facts that you and Joanna sent to each yes. other when you when you weren't actually together. Yeah, we used to send um you see the fax machine which was like the text of its day. Okay, I tell suppose. me how did that work? Was well, because faxes <laughs> were suddenly like the, did you not know how it works, no. dear? All right, it's it's some paper in a roll, a roll and you put you put in the you put your right. fax in which okay. you write on a piece of paper yes. and it comes out the other end. Not your end, your <laughs> other end, <laughs> the other end of the telephone line. Ah. So you telephone a letter to people. You phone a letter. You phone oh, a letter to people. Okay. And it just became addictive because it's a bit like Twitter, I suppose, which is once once you start mm. and you think, oh, I've got to keep being funny now. I've got to find another funny thing to do. And your life is spent looking around the world with your eyes flicking for something funny to put on Twitter. <laughs> I can put that on. Oh, no, that's not funny enough. It's not funny enough. And the rest of your life means nothing <laughs> apart from what's funny on Twitter. And it's the same with the faxes. I used to spend days cutting things out, funny things out of magazines, sticking them on bits of paper, writing a few funny things in and then posting them off on the fax to Joanna. And she'd, <laughs> she'd send them back. And we just had... Such fun! Tell us what's in them. You sort of you took on characters, and you yes, took... generally a character between the two of us, which is I'm Sandwich, who is um, <laughs> the sort of 
um, over, uh, someone who thinks she's a big star um, and has the television show. And uh, Joanna is um, Jack Lumpley, who is also whatever name she chooses on the day, uh, who is an out-of-work, generally-in-a-home actress <laughs> who's begging me for work. Um, we, honestly, we just, we just used to make ourselves laugh. And those are, are those are wonderful, but they're not even the funniest facts in the book, <laughs> which I think is a title <laughs> reserved for a series of exchanges between yourself and Miss Goldie Horn. Yes, rather strangely. Which are sort of unintentionally funny in a way. <laughs> well, they are unintentionally funny, and they're because they they are desperate. It basically, it's me pretending I've done some writing for her that I haven't done, and her begging me to write it. And you're getting into a sort of series of elaborate metaphors about... Yes. Well, you're, you're making a series of excuses. So uh, many Incredible excuses. excuses. So many. Some now. <laughs> I'm, I actually blush when I read those. I think, how can you... Honestly, the nerve. And some of them I just decide to talk like Bertie Wooster. <laughs> and go, hey-ho, tinker-tonk, onwards now, going to the, oil the old brain and, uh, and, you know, put the old fingers on the old keyboard, tinker-tonk, hey-ho. Get, you get into this elaborate metaphor towards the end about the ba- you're in <laughs> labour and the baby's kind of, you know, and you're, you're in the advanced stages. I'm and... just trying to keep it light. <laughs> I think that's the thing, <laughs> is you just want to keep it all tinker-tonk because really it's, it's rather sad and very, very desperate by then. Because we just didn't do the work. We just didn't do the work. And it would have been probably easier to do it than to we actually write d- this. This was a project that Ruby Wax said, Jennifer, we can do it in a month. And a year and a half later, <laughs> it was no further forward. <laughs> well, thankfully, not all your writing projects end like no, that. No, because some of them come in on time, don't they, Joel? They do. Thank you. Including bonkers. Bonkers. So thank you, Jennifer. Our pleasure. That was Jennifer Saunders talking about her autobiography, Bonkers, which is out now. Now, from one half of a comedy duo to a full comedy double act. Many of you will be familiar with Jack Whitehall, and some of you may also know that his father, Michael Whitehall, has been an agent to acting legends from Judy Dench to Colin Firth. What you might not all know is that together they tell a hugely entertaining and irreverent account of a unique relationship between a father and a son. Here they are introducing an extract from their book, him and me. Hello, I'm Jack Whitehall. And I'm Michael Whitehall. And you're listening to the Penguin Podcast. Podcast? What's a podcast? It's an online Pod. thing that you download and you listen to people. And the, the, it's the Penguin. But I'll, I'll play it to you later. It's nothing to do with peas. What? No, shh. It's, um, it's to do with computers, so just ignore oh, it. Right. For this special comedy episode, I wanted to introduce you to my book, Him what and Me. Uh, you mean my, your book? Well, it's my book. Written, it's not your book. I've written half of it. You've written half of it. It's our book. Yeah, but... I it's mean, not all sort of me, 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 this I'm not book. saying it's all me. It's about I'm... you and me. Yes, OK. I mean, to be honest, you know, this is just my personal opinion, I think the chapters I've written are... Slightly different class to the ones that you've written. I mean, they've got a sort of literary feel to them. I mean, somebody like I don't know Joanna Trollope or something. If she was, fi- know you know, is. going through the the book, I know which chapters she'd like. Probably my one. Whereas yours would be good for people like Paul Potts. Is that the man? Yeah, he's in it. I've got lots of people that I reference in my things that young people would like. There's a story about Ollie Murs. Yes, exactly. Well, it's more that kind of world. You're the Ollie Murs world, and I'm more the, the Ollie... Ollie Reed? <laughs> Ollie Reed's world, yes. Do you even know who Ollie Murs is? Yes, he's a nice boy. He's that boy we met in Essex when you did that show up yes. in Essex. Yeah. Quite pleased with himself, but... but I don't nice say, you can't say that about Ollie Murs. And doesn't Molly, your sister Molly, isn't she quite fancy Ollie yeah, she Murs? quite fancies him. Yeah. In fact, I think she's quite keen on Ollie Reed as well. Yeah she was um okay well now they're going to play an extract from our book which I, I, extract to be used i don't know i would suggest we use one of mine why do you keep saying that my well, chapters are fine who's going to decide the what extract the listeners will decide i guess yeah, I maybe they'll get given an option and they can vote for which one they listen to okay. vote me here's the extract from a very early age jack adored and i mean adored dressing up Captain Scarlet, Troy Tempest, Aladdin, Robin Hood, Dinosaurs, Captain Hook, Peter Pan, Power Rangers, Medieval Knights, Medieval Kings, Wizards, Vampires, and rather worryingly, The Little Mermaid. Her name is Ariel. 
The one thing that linked all these characters, at least when Jack was portraying them, was that they all wore tights. Farman Sam is a fireman, I told Jack one day, and I think it very unlikely that he would wear tights. It fell on deaf ears. Worse still, Hillary often had to make these costumes. There was one Christmas when she spent weeks wrestling with metres of pink satin and gold lame, running up a Power Ranger suit. Why did it have to be the pink one? Um, because Kimberly was by far the coolest Power Ranger. Do you think this is wise, Hilary? I asked her. You'll turn the boy into Liberace. When she wasn't at the sewing machine, she would be on the phone, often in tears, to Wuss, who at this stage was working as a social worker in a child guidance clinic, so was good for a bit of advice on Jack's foibles. How can I get him to stop wearing tights? Hilary would ask. He'll grow out of it, Wuss would reassure her. Yes, but when? Little did we know how long it would take. 24 years and counting, wearing them now. Many a family... As is my father. Many a family... Suspenders. And a bra. We're both wearing them. It was a bet. Do you want to concur, father? Take his silence as acceptance. I have no intention of dignifying those remarks with a response. Many a family occasion was ruined before we'd even left the house. There was a memorable pre-party crisis when Jack insisted that Hillary make his hair look just like Scott Tracy's from Thunderbirds. After several fruitless attempts and gallons of hair product, Hillary explained to a now inconsolable Jack that she was never going to be able to get it looking exactly like Scott Tracy's hair, as Scott Tracy was a puppet. Still not an excuse that I think holds up. Such a quitter, my mother. Jack didn't only confine his penchant for dressing up to himself. Frequently, he would insist that all members of the family joined in. On one occasion, our friend Anne Mullins, Molly's godmother, was made to dress up as Darth Vader. Darth Vader. Is he called Darth Vader? Darth Vader? Va- Are you serious? Yeah. You don't know... How- it's Darth Vader. Oh, right. Darth Vader. Oh, V-A-D-E-R, Vader. Vader. Hello, this is Darth Vader. Was made to how dress up... How much less scary would he be if his name was Darth Vader? Was made to dress up as Darth Vader because he didn't have enough baddies to scare people. Then there was the party when he insisted that his elderly grandparents don pirate outfits, and I myself was once forced to dress up... Asked politely. Forced to dress up properly as a clown before I was allowed through the doors of one of Barnaby's parties, which in retrospect was a bit of an error as the entertainer was running late and everyone looked at me to step into the breach. It wasn't going to happen. The children all seemed to find it very amusing. I didn't. Still, they weren't laughing for long, as moments later Timmy Twinkle arrived and quickly knocked them into shape with a trick that involved him picking out a particularly annoying child from his young audience and putting him in a cupboard. Seriously, that was the trick. This man is a monster. The children were subdued for the rest of the party. Um, they were probably traumatised for the rest of their lives. You also haven't mentioned the party where um, I came dressed as Luke Skywalker. Right. Very, very funny. <laughs> One of the first and most... Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> right. Can, we, can I carry on, please? Yes, yeah, so I'll stop making silly Star Wars jokes. One of the first and most spectacular costumes Jack ever wore was courtesy of his cousin Graham. Graham worked as a footman at Buckingham Palace. Jack was very keen to meet the Queen, so he and his siblings joined Hilary and me on a backstairs visit that Graham had arranged for us. However, before our visit could be confirmed, we had to go through endless security checks to prove that we were fit and proper people. There was a 10-page questionnaire to complete and we had to send in copies of our passports. No problem for Hillary and the children, but I was a little concerned for myself as in all passport photographs for many years, 
I've always resembled a Nazi war criminal who has chosen to settle in London rather than Buenos Aires. Because obviously that's the last thing they'd want in Buckingham Palace, someone with German ancestry. If you're going to make sort of cheap, sarky, racist remarks about the royal family, I'm going to walk out of here. Okay, sorry, Father. By the way, the only reason you look like a Nazi war criminal in those passport photos is because you insist on wearing that SS uniform. If you stop wearing it, then you won't look like a Nazi war criminal. Wear the suspenders that you're wearing now. And no one would think that. Or maybe your Darth Vader costume. Once we had been given the green light, we arranged a date. Graham met us at the staff entrance of the palace. His tour started with a visit to the kitchens on the basis that we would work our way up the building, starting from the bottom. In the kitchen, we met a Mrs Patmore look-alike who showed us the system for letting the staff know which royals were in and which were out for each meal. This seemed to consist of lots of little magnetic name tags. There were two lifts outside the kitchen with a sign on one saying not to be used between 12 noon and 2pm and 7pm and 9pm when the Queen is in residence. Graham explained that this lift was used to take up the Queen's lunch and dinner and bring it down again when she'd finished so no one was allowed to use it in case they tampered with her food. I could see Jack trying to work out how he could get involved in this process. Next, we found ourselves in a sewing room which had floor-to-ceiling shelves full of beautifully pressed linens. Another Mrs Patmore look-alike, is there an agency that supplies these kind of people, was sitting on a bentwood chair darning a pair of socks that she told Jack belonged to Prince Philip. You never darn my socks, I said to Hilary. If you want to get your socks down, get yourself a housekeeper, she replied helpfully. There then followed a seminal moment when the children got as close to the Queen as they were going to on this visit. She walked into the sewing room, brandishing a broken bra strap, and went, Ooh, that Prince Philip will be the death of me! Just stop all these ludicrous things and remarks and everything. I'm trying to tell this story, and it's an interesting story involving the royal family. Okay. That was from him and me, which you can download now. Hope you enjoyed just it. Just download me. Down, just shh. Down what? I'll explain. Okay. Download away. That was Jack and Michael Whitehall introducing an extract from the audiobook edition of Him and Me, which is available now. Going to head back to Don now with his account of the infamous apricot ice cream disaster. Daters be warned. Jean and Claudia tried for a while to assist me with the wife problem. Unfortunately, their approach was based on the traditional dating paradigm, which I had previously abandoned on the basis that the probability of success did not justify the effort and negative experiences. I am 39 years old, tall, fit and intelligent, with a relatively high status and above average income as an associate professor. Logically, I should be attractive to a wide range of women. In the animal kingdom, I would succeed in reproducing. However, there is something about me that women find unappealing. I have never found it easy to make friends, and it seems that the deficiencies that cause this problem have also affected my attempts at romantic relationships. The apricot ice cream disaster is a good example. Claudia had introduced me to one of her many friends, Elizabeth was a highly intelligent computer scientist with a vision problem that had been corrected with glasses. I mentioned the glasses because Claudia showed me a photograph and asked me if I was okay with them. An incredible question from a psychologist. In evaluating Elizabeth's suitability as a potential partner, someone to provide intellectual stimulation, to share activities with, perhaps even to breed with, Claudia's first concern was my reaction to her choice of glasses frames, which was probably not even her own but the result of advice from an optometrist. This is the world I have to live in. Then Claudia told me, as though it was a problem, she has very firm ideas. Are they evidence-based? I guess so, Claudia said. Perfect. She could have been describing me. We met at a Thai restaurant. Restaurants are minefields for the socially inept, and I was nervous as always in these situations. 
but we got off to an excellent start when we both arrived at exactly 7pm as arranged. Poor synchronisation is a huge waste of time. We survived the meal without her criticising me for any social errors. It is difficult to conduct a conversation while wondering whether you are looking at the correct body part, but I locked onto her bespectacled eyes, as recommended by Jean. This resulted in some inaccuracy in the eating process, which she did not seem to notice. On the contrary, we had a highly productive discussion about simulation algorithms. She was so interesting. I could already see the possibility of a permanent relationship. The waiter brought the dessert menus and Elizabeth said, I don't like Asian desserts. This was almost certainly an unsound generalisation, based on limited experience and perhaps I should have recognised it as a warning sign. But it provided me with an opportunity for a creative suggestion. We could get an ice cream across the road. Great idea, as long as they've got apricot. I assessed that I was progressing well at this point and did not think the apricot preference would be a problem. I was wrong. The ice cream parlour had a vast selection of flavours, but they had exhausted their supply of apricot. I ordered a chocolate chilli and licorice double cone for myself and asked Elizabeth to nominate her second preference. If they haven't got apricot, I'll pass. I couldn't believe it. All ice cream tastes essentially the same, due to chilling of the taste buds. This is especially true of fruit flavours. I suggested mango. No thanks, I'm fine. I explained the physiology of taste bud chilling in some detail. I predicted that if I purchased a mango and peach ice cream, she would be incapable of differentiating, and by extension, either would be equivalent to apricot. They're completely different, she said. If you can't tell mango from peach, that's your problem. Now we had a simple objective disagreement that could readily be resolved experimentally. I ordered a minimum size ice cream in each of the two flavours, but by the time the serving person had prepared them and I turned to ask Elizabeth to close her eyes for the experiment, she had gone. So much for evidence-based and for computer scientist. Afterwards, Claudia advised me that I should have abandoned the experiment prior to Elizabeth leaving. Obviously, but at what point? Where was the signal? These are the subtleties I failed to see. But I also failed to see why heightened sensitivity to obscure cues about ice cream flavours should be a prerequisite for being someone's partner. It seems reasonable to assume that some women do not require this. Unfortunately, the process of finding them is impossibly inefficient. The apricot ice cream disaster had cost a whole evening of my life, compensated for only by the information about simulation algorithms. That was an extract from The Rosie Project, audiobook with Dan O'Grady as the voice of Don Tillman. Next, we have another father and son combo who made their debut in Catherine O'Flynn's charming novel, Mr Lynch's Holiday, about a father who goes to visit his son living in Spain, only to find that his son's life is not quite as he expected. Here's the author, Catherine O'Flynn, telling us her reasons for setting her story in Spain. I think there were two starting points for the place. One was that um, my husband and I actually went to live out in Spain in the early 2000s. Um, we didn't go to live in a crumbling development. We went to live in Barcelona, so it was very different. But at the same time, there was that sense of this slight arrogance of thinking, well, life's quite good in England, but could be even better in Barcelona. Why not we move there? And very quickly realising that the beauty becomes invisible very quickly and the idea of life without work and uh, this immense freedom actually becomes quite isolating and uh, it starts to send you slightly um, unhinged in various ways after a little while and it you know it turned out okay for me I wrote my first novel there and it was okay but I got a glimpse of that kind of you can't just buy happiness or geographically locate happiness and then a few years later we actually went on holiday to Spain um, to a different part of Spain uh, and it was a deserted ghost town. It was a place for um, second homeowners and it was out of season. So the only people there really were myself, my husband, I think two shopkeepers and lots of feral cats. And it was so eerie walking around at night and the whole atmosphere of the place was very haunting. And one evening there was a power cut that lasted for a few hours. 
And it was just amazing to me how quickly I just crumbled and my paranoia started mounting. And I thought, they don't know we're here. Nobody knows we're here. They're never going to turn the power back on. We're going to have to eat the cats. We're going to die here. And um, and it was those two things, really, that sort of stayed with me that I thought, I, I think I want to write about something to do with those themes. But what you did was transpose those themes into the internal world of the characters as well. The, 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 the Mr Lynch, the title, uh, is... Irish, but lived most of his adult life uh, in in Birmingham. Yeah. Uh, we have his son, who's decided again to to chase the dream, but he's lost yeah. a part of himself in the process. All the other expats share a similar sense of dislocation, and I wondered about the the personal rather than the geographic element that you were hoping to explore. I think I was really interested in in looking at those two types of migration, really. Well, various types of migration, but particularly the contrast between Dermot, who, who left Ireland for England in search of, uh, you know, a better a, a way of surviving, really, for taking his place in the world, and Eamon, who, who moves to Spain, really, just because I have a sense of entitlement to greater personal happiness, and and the kind of the massive divide between those two generations. Um, you know, there's always, there's always a divide between generations, but I think sometimes it can be greater than others, particularly if you're the child of immigrant child or if you're the um, child of quite an elderly parent and which are both true of Dermot and so Eamon has grown up one of those very awkward self-hating self-hating member of the middle class you know he's he's moved up a sort of the social scale and he's no longer comfortable with the kind of uh, the background into which he was born nor the nor the sort of milieu that he now mixes in and he just feels constantly assuaged by feelings of anxiety and guilt and awkwardness and you know I can identify with that I know I know a lot of my friends are like that and it's it's something that somehow I think doesn't get explored that much um that kind of real you know they're ridiculous characters Eamon cannot he has no useful skills whatsoever <laughs> his, his main skill is uh, is just anxiety and neurosis where his father is this incredibly capable man who has very little um, anxiety about his place in the world or his relationships with other people and I just thought I like the idea of writing a story about a strong parent rescuing a weaker child but that the strong parent was an elderly man and the weaker child was like an adult male I thought it would kind of be quite interesting to set it like that The other uh, noticeable thing I, I felt was that it's almost exclusively male the the, uh, the uh, Eamon's girlfriend Laura, who seems an absolutely delightful <laughs> char- character, scarcely appears as Inga as well, uh, who again is, a, is secondary, and that was intriguing as well to tell the story so so clearly from the, the position of, from the from the point of view of two wheels. Was that a again a, a deliberate choice on your part in advance? Do you say I want to tell it, or just this is what men are like, and I can get there? Um, I'm not sure how deliberate it was. I think I thought. It, it actually doesn't play that big a part in my considerations when I'm thinking. It's it's a strange thing, but I don't actually... Um, I never really think about, oh, I'm going to write about a male character or a female character. I don't have any problem writing male characters, which isn't to say I write them amazingly well, but it just means that I don't think my characters succeed or fail on the basis of whether they're male or female. And I think I wanted to write about father and son here because that process of migration... It's often, in the first place, the man's story, isn't it? They're the ones who will go over abroad and maybe the wife will come over later or bring their families over. And I suppose, to some extent, when I started thinking about the kind of person that Eamon was and compared to his father, there were quite a lot of issues about masculinity that I thought it might be interesting to explore. So it ended up... And and there might even be an element of... I wanted, you know, I, I'm the child of, you know, an elderly Irish father and I, it's not about me or my dad and so it's a way of distancing it and getting a bit of a for me, a little bit of perspective on it by shifting it slightly. Did that succeed? Or did you find yourself creeping in, in your father, <laughs> seeping through? Um, I think it, I, I think I managed to get quite separate. I was worried that Dermot could turn into my father, but he didn't because Dermot's brilliant at DIY and my father was atrocious and Dermot's <laughs> far more capable, really, than my dad ever was. Um, but and actually, no, that, 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 but that point, though, in, in fact, that's not the point about the characters. It's not that Dermot is capable at DIY or that Eamon is you know, no. not, not doing a useful job it's that it, the, the whole story hinges on the, the kind of the nature of their personalities yeah uh, rather than their sort of skills and attributes it's, yeah. not, it's not their CV that defines them no 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 you're absolutely right I think um I mean it just occurred to me that and it's true of all of us I think you know with with some exceptions that we, we grow up very incurious about our parents you know they're completely part of the background and uh 
largely invisible. You know, just like talking about the beauty of, of moving abroad becomes invisible. I think our parents are invisible to us for, for a large part. And obviously Derma is not necessarily the type of man who grew up uh, having a great role in his son's life. You know, he was out working, you know, it was that, that generation. And so really they, they don't really know each other very well at all. And I think, I think Eamon is aware vaguely that Dermot's quite a strong character but he doesn't see his vulnerabilities and similarly Dermot is aware that Eamon is, is a bit of a, a little bit flaky but he doesn't see his, his sort of more uh, his more nobler side as well so um, yeah you're right it was uh, they're, they're sort of it was exploring the difference between them and the fact they just don't really know each other very well at all it is layered throughout with moments of really poignant uh, sadness uh, as well as this uh, rather dark, bleak humour. And I, had, I should also say there's some just laugh-out-loud funny <laughs> st- stuff in there as well. I- I'm sort of interested in the process there. Do you think structurally about this and say, OK, if this is going to work, we need to have this here and this here and this here? Or does it flow or does it grow as you're writing? I don't think at all about balancing the sort of the light and dark. Um, I find that just very natural you know to me that's um i think that's just the way i i perceive the world that it's kind of a mixture of um you know comedy and tragedy and so i'm never really conscious of thinking oh, okay i'll put a sad bit here and a funny bit here or a you know attempt at a funny bit here um i think i do i mean i do sort of plan the structure quite a bit in advance but not with not with that really in mind, not so much the sort of the light and shade in mind. Well, except that you, uh, I'm, I'm clearly not going to give away the ending, but you make, you make a decision about the ending. And yeah. At some, point, at some point you have to say, well, this is the way this is going to go. Oh, this yeah. Is, this is the feeling that you're going to get at the end of this book. Yeah. Do you know that from the start? Yes, I do. I'm kind of one of those, I'm not at all one of those writers who says, you know, I sit down and I let the characters take me on a journey. It's not, I am taking the characters <laughs> on a journey. I am pushing them along every inch of the way to their ultimate destination, which I have I've decided. I'm not able to, um, I'm not able to write not knowing where it's going to end up. Um, what I do is um, I have a sort of pretty good idea of, of the plot, which obviously changes a lot over time. All kinds of things change and mutate, but... When I write it, I, I don't write it in order. It comes out in all kinds of um, strange sequences. And then I have a horrible job at the end trying to piece it all together. Um, but I do I do sort of know where I'm headed all the way through it, or at various points, and it shifts. <laughs> that was Catherine O'Flynn talking about her latest book, Mr Lynch's Holiday, which is out now. We now have an audio book extract from the seventh book in the hugely popular Wimpy Kids series, The Third Wheel. Greg Heffley may not be perfect, but what pubescent kid is? Here he is. It took a long time, but eventually I did learn to walk, and before I knew it, I was in preschool. I was hoping I'd have a head start over the other kids because of all the work Mom had put in with the classical music and the educational DVDs. But the other moms must have done that stuff too, because the competition in preschool was pretty stiff. I mean, you had kids in there who knew how to use buttons and zippers when I could barely figure out how to pull off my mittens without help from a grown-up. A few of my classmates could write their own names, and one or two could count all the way to 50. I knew I couldn't keep up, so I decided to try and slow everyone else down by feeding them bad information. My plan kind of backfired, though and my preschool teacher told Mom I wasn't learning my colors and shapes like the other kids. But Mom said I was smart, and that maybe the problem was I wasn't being challenged enough. So Mom actually took me out of preschool and had me skip a grade to kindergarten. But that decision was a total disaster. The kids in kindergarten seemed like giants to me, and they knew how to do stuff like cut with scissors and color inside the lines. I didn't even make it a whole day in kindergarten before the teacher had to call Mom to come get me. The next day, Mom brought me back to preschool and asked the teacher if I could have my cubby back. I just hope your academic record doesn't follow you around, because it might be tough for me to get a good job later on if people find out I was a kindergarten dropout. That was an extract from the audiobook edition of Wimpy Kid, The Third Wheel, which is out now.
For all Wimpy Kid fans out there, the eighth book in the series, Hard Luck, is out on 6th November. You can find out more at www.wimpykidclub.co.uk. Before I sign off, Don did write down some personal thoughts for me to share with you. So here are Don's thoughts on comedy. Greetings. As part of my contractual obligation to contribute to the marketing of the Rosie Project, my case study of human attraction, bizarrely illustrated with an Atlantic lobster, I am required to speak for two minutes on comedy. Another ludicrous request. Obviously, the marketing person gave zero consideration to my qualifications in the field. My work focuses on the genetic basis of susceptibility to cirrhosis of the liver in mice, which is unrelated to humour. Obviously, it would be more efficient to have a comedy expert deliver this lecture, while I continued my research uninterrupted. I predict at least one listener will die from cirrhosis in the future as a direct result of the delay. My comedy qualifications are limited to being the cause of unintended laughter. Asking for an analysis of what produces that laughter is approximately equivalent to asking the mice why they are white. Approximately, because as a human I am able to do research, which in this case required three hours and 12 minutes. This was to be expected, but probably not by marketing people. Result of research? Laughter appears to be an evolved reaction to the unexpected and a means of dealing with the resulting discomfort. However, not all unexpected events cause laughter. Obvious example. The disruption to my schedule caused by this promotional activity, which caused annoyance rather than laughter. My hypothesis is that the discomfort needs to be more fundamental and bring into doubt a person's understanding of reality or their habitual behaviour. Hence the reason I generate laughter. My observations of behaviour are unexpected, but totally rational. If someone says, tell me something I didn't know, and I reply with an interesting educational fact, they laugh, because the correct rational meaning of what they have said has been pointed out to them. Their amusement at the standardised meal system increases as I list the advantages, and they realise the incredible inefficiency of their own approach to nutrition. And if I respond exactly and correctly to a request which has been made of me... Two minutes is completed. And that's it from the Penguin Podcast. Don't forget to head to the Penguin Book SoundCloud page for other author readings and audiobook extracts at www.soundcloud.com slash penguin books. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, visit the website, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email them to podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or find them on Twitter, at Penguin Podcast. And don't forget to follow Don Tillman, at Prof Don Tillman, with two L's. You've been listening to the Penguin Podcast.